brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, we just sang these words, lift up your heads, you arch and gate, you ancient doors, rise up and wait. Who is this king in glory great, the Lord of hosts, him we await. There is a theme in this psalm of waiting and anticipation. And the theme of waiting and anticipation is also the theme of Advent. Advent, the four weeks leading up to Christmas. In our modern day, Advent has to do with waiting and anticipating Christmas Day. And so if you were to go to Walmart, and maybe some of you kids already have this in your home, you can get an Advent calendar where you open up a little door and inside is a chocolate. And you get a chocolate every day as you lead up to Christmas. And now you're all gonna go home and ask your parents if you could have one of those. And if your parents give one of you, them to you, then you can invite me over because I really like chocolate too. And so that's how we usually think about Advent, as we lead up to Christmas. When my kids were young, we had this little Christmas, Christian Advent set, set and, and we would open these little boxes as we led up to Advent and inside there were little lessons that explained the Christmas story and there were little pieces of a, of a nativity set and at the end we would have explained the Christmas story. And that's good, that's beautiful, but traditionally in the Christian church, Advent is not about waiting and anticipating or preparing for the arrival of baby Jesus. That's not what Advent has traditionally been about. After all, baby Jesus is all grown up, has died on the cross, risen from the dead, and ascended into heaven. So we don't need to wait for baby Jesus. Traditionally, Advent has been about waiting and anticipating, waiting and watching and hoping for the return of Jesus on the clouds of heaven. That is indeed what Advent is about. Advent is a time where we say just as God's people in the Old Testament yearned and longed and waited and watched for the coming of the Messiah, so we the church today yearn and long and wait and watch for the return of the Messiah to come to judge the living and the dead. And so Advent the season of Advent highlights a certain tension that exists in the Christian life. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, it says, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. We have it. And then Ephesians 4 verse 30 says, we still wait for the day of redemption. We have redemption in his blood, but we still wait for the final day of redemption, that final day when the Lord will return. And so there's a certain tension in the Christian life that the season of, of Advent highlights. This tension that we have already been redeemed, saved by grace through faith, and yet we experience also a, a sorrowful yearning, a, a waiting and watching for the, the not yet redemption of Christ that will come when he returns. And we live in a sin-filled, suffer-filled, death-filled world waiting for the Lord to return. And so that what we have already and what we do not yet ha have, the not yet of the Christian life, has a tension. And Fleming Rutledge, a scholar and preacher, says this, in that Advent tension, the church lives its life. In the tension between the already and the not yet. Now in our church tradition, we 
have not traditionally spent a lot of time in Advent or thinking about Advent as part of the church calendar, but in our book of praise, we do have four beautiful Advent hymns. And so for the Sundays of Advent, I would like to spend some time looking at those hymns and the scripture texts on which they're based on. How do you live in the Advent tension? How do you live between what we already have in Christ and what we do not yet have in Christ? The way the church lives her life in that tension is to yearn and long and wait and watch and pray and sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, Emmanuel. So what I would like to do this morning is to draw your attention to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, hymn 16 in your book of praise. You can look at it with me. And we're going, I'm gonna give you a brief overview and then we're gonna dig into the scriptures on which this, uh, this hymn is based. In that way, this sermon will be a bit unusual. The rest of the Advent hymns are based on solitary biblical texts from which I will preach. This particular hymn is based on numerous texts so we will draw from various texts in scripture in this morning's sermon. So look at hymn 16, if you will. This is an ancient hymn. It's based on ninth century antiphons, which are small Christian chants that were placed before or after songs that the church would sing. And so this hymn, or a variation of this hymn, has been sung by Christians for over a thousand years. Over a thousand years of longing, and aching and yearning and hoping for Christ's return. It's a prayer that the church sings in the tension of Advent. So if you, you look at me with the, the, psalm, uh, the song, every verse, there's five verses, and every verse, the first line of the hymn invokes a particular name of Jesus. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Verse two, O come, O come, thou Lord of might. Verse three, O come, thou branch of Jesse's stem. Verse four, Come thou dayspring from on high. In verse five, O come thou who hast David's key. And so it is a prayer for the second coming of Christ. It's a prayer to Jesus asking him to ransom us and to rescue us and to comfort us and to save us. And then in each verse, we get the answer to our prayer. Because in each verse we hear, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. So every verse is a prayer to the Lord Jesus and every verse gives us the answer that the Lord Jesus will come. He will come to his church. The tune that we have comes from the 1800s. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful, haunting tune. It has this artistic rhythm of longing for something and then that's punctuated with these these powerful bursts of of joy in the refrain, and it captures this Advent tension. It captures what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's the Christian life, isn't it? That we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The already and the not yet. Christ has come to redeem us, but we live in a world of suffering and of sin, and so we wait for him to return and to make it all new. John Piper writes this about this hymn. In sorrow and oppression and suffering and sin, we call out to Jesus, asking him to come again to earth to save and redeem us fully. 
And with every verse, the refrain reaches down musically into our weak hearts and pulls us up in faith to see the certainty of the end. It's a beautiful way to put it. So what are the scriptures behind this hymn? In both the sorrow and the rejoicing of this hymn, and also at the names of Jesus in each verse, all of that finds its roots, its background in the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is a big book. It has many themes, it covers many different time periods. One of the themes that we find in that book is the Lord's punishment of his people for their rebellion against him. And we know historically that it takes place in uh, 700 to 600 years before Jesus, the Assyrian and the Babylonian exile, God's people are conquered, they're driven out from their land, they're exiled. The obliteration of the once mighty kingdom of David. And it's hard for us to get our heads wrapped around how earth shattering that exile that punishment was for Israel. It shook their identity. It shook their, their who, they thought of the, uh, uh, who they thought they were. Their, it seemed to be the end of the nation, the end of a people. It seemed to the, uh, for them to be the end of the covenant of God. But all was lost. So they were, Jerusalem was destroyed and they, they were exiled out into their, their enemies' territories, oppressed living life of captivity and lonely exile, the presence of God in the temple no more, the temple no more, the rites and the rituals of the Jewish law given by Moses, by God on Mount Sinai could no longer be kept. They had descended as a people into darkness, spiritual and national darkness and sorrow. So we get psalms like Psalm 137 out of this period. By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Despondency. And the hymn before us draws emotionally and theologically from that period of time of exile in Isaiah's day to talk about our own times. And that's a valid thing to do because the Apostle Peter in his uh, first letter speaks of believers as exiles and sojourners in the world. Last week at the public profession of faith, we spoke about Peter's words, how he says, after you have suffered a little while, after you have suffered in this life. In Romans 8.23 it says, we still groan inwardly as we wait uh, eagerly for our adoption as sons for the redemption of our bodies. In 1 Corinthians 1, it, uh, verse 7, it says, we still wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we still wait for the final deliverance from the wrath to come. Galatians 5.5, 5, we still wait for the hope of righteousness. We sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, because we recognize that the struggle of the church today is the same struggle of the church in the days of Isaiah, that we need deliverance from a world of sin and suffering. Our persecuted brothers and sisters, they know this to be true with every piece of their soul and body. And so with the persecuted church, we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We cry it for ourselves as well. We as a church and as a people of faith, we are afforded little time and respect by those in power today in this country. We have our beliefs and we're told that is okay as long as we keep them private. 
The Christian beliefs and values of scripture formed this country, but today Christians here are described in the media and in movies as backward and outdated and bigoted. God is openly mocked and blasphemed in our nation, and the Holy Bible is discredited and written off. We are also a church in exile. And we feel the suffering and the captivity of exile as we look around at the suffering of this dark world where there are millions of poor people who don't know how they will feed their children today. Where there are millions and millions of orphans who sleep on the streets packed together to, uh, to protect themselves, living a daily hell. We know we live in exile when we read of the horrific statistics of abuse and neglect. And we see a world of racism and sexism and the hoarding and misuse of resources and horrendous sinful inequality and abortion for the sale of body parts and all sorts of depravity. We live in a hellish, tear-filled world of lonely exile. And I know, brothers and sisters, as I look out at you this morning, that you know that to be true in your own lives. You know that this world is not right. You know it when you're lonely and you don't seem to fit in. When you feel kind of lost in life, without a plan, when you feel stressed about school and about your marks, when you're worried about failing or worried about not being good enough, when you're worried about your relationships, you feel the exile when your marriage is tense and your spouse seems a stranger to you, when you get older and you feel scared as your body deteriorates, when you feel pulled in different directions, unsure of what to do, being afraid of being left behind, when you're bullied, when you're stalked, when you're burdened by expectations of others, when you're tired, you feel your captivity when you're tired, so tired of your work, of your responsibilities, so tired of dealing with family and dealing with difficult parents and dealing with difficult children when you're worried as you see those that you tenderly love spin outside of the sphere of your influence and there's nothing you can do, when sickness and pain stalks your life as sickness and pain stalks the life of so many here this morning, when your life is plagued with unexplained or undiagnosed sickness, when depression and anxiety and mental illness frees your life. You feel your exile and captivity. When you're burning the candle on both ends and you're afraid how it will end, you feel that you live in a world under the curse. And you feel the captivity also in the ugly reality of your own personal sin the quicksand of temptation that swallows you up alive in a moment 
When beckoning evil calls out from the gates of hell and dark shadows and gloomy clouds torment you in a world that seems so strongly in the clutches of the devil. A world where Christians like you and I in exile do the things that we don't want to do and don't do the things that we want to do. In a world where sin just sticks to us against our will and we don't want to do it but it sticks with us in addiction and selfishness and idolatry and all the unspeakable things that drive us down into intoxicating, sickening the darkness. We live in exile. We know that too because we live in a world where the last enemy, death, is still present in our lives. When cancer takes the lives of a loved one, leaving a gaping hole in our existence. Where babies miscarry in the womb before they see the light of day. Where the ache of death is carried here this morning by people like a burden a shroud of grief that weighs us down. We are sorrow-filled sojourners and teary exiles in a world that is not yet right. In the doom and the gloom of Isaiah's day, Isaiah prophesied that all was not lost. He proclaimed a, a glorious messianic promise in the midst of the darkness. A promise that we in our sorrow and we in our sin, we still look forward to this promise today that the Messiah, the Christ, will return and redeem his people from captivity and save them from exile. That his kingdom will come and that his will will be done. That the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them it's an image of peace and harmony and the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so as the Old Testament people yearned and longed and waited and watched for, for God to redeem them from exile, we as the church today, we yearn and we long and we wait and we watch for the Lord to return and to redeem us from this world of tears, of sin and suffering, for the Lord to return and make things right again. And so we sing and we pray with sorrowful hope, O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, Emmanuel. That's a drawn from the book of Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14. Where we read, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew picks up on that in, in the first chapter of the book of Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament where he says this, speaking of the birth of Jesus Christ, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by his prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. I, Matthew would have understood that that prophecy of Isaiah would have been partially fulfilled in Isaiah's day, but he knew that Isaiah also had a larger hope, a bigger messianic hope 
that Jesus came to fulfill as the promised child, Emmanuel, Jesus who is God with us. And now our Advent hymn, it takes this truth, this hope in Christ, and applies it to us today, and as lonely exiles, and as sojourners in a world of suffering and sin, we long for and we yearn for and we wait and we watch with tears in our eyes and we pray for the second coming of Christ and we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Verse two cries out, O come, O come, thou Lord of might. The author draws again from Isaiah, this time in Isaiah 33, where we read, O Lord, be gracious to us, we wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. And then near the end of the chapter in verse 22, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. And the Lord there is capitalized in Isaiah. It's the name of Yahweh, the covenant God. It's Isaiah teaching the people in a time of darkness to put their confidence in their covenant God. He is the righteous judge and he will vindicate his church. He is the lawgiver. It's he who determines what is right and what is wrong. The grass may wither, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And he is the king not the powers that be, not the movers and shakers of our world, not the people who would, who would try to tell the church what they should say and not say, not the political correctness police, not our lawmakers and not our news columnists, not our history writers, and certainly not the persecutors and the terrorists. The Lord is king. And so the church prays with longing, waiting and watching, for Christ to return. O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who on thy tribes, on Zion's height, in ancient times didst give the law, in cloud and majesty and awe. Verse three speaks of Jesus as the branch of Jesse's stem draws directly from Isaiah chapter 11, which we read together. <laughs> if you look at the verses just prior to Isaiah chapter 11, you see something very interesting. It's, it's the Lord stripping the forest of Lebanon bare, reducing it to stumps. You can imagine, for instance, if you were to go off to your favorite camping spot, if you were to go maybe to Algonquin Park or some other park and you were to arrive there and to your great surprise, every tree had been cut down. And all that was left of that beautiful spot was stumps and deadness. And then you came upon just one stump, just one stump that had an, a new shoot growing up out of it, a sign of new hope that things might grow back again, a promise of new life in the middle of devastation. And that's what we see 
In Isaiah chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And then in verse 10, in that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. It's a prophetic hope in Isaiah that out of the kingdom of David and out of a land of devastation, a Messiah will rise and he will come to make things right again. And then the apostle Paul, he, he links this to Jesus in Romans chapter 15, saying it is Jesus who is that root. It is Jesus who is that branch that grows out of Jesse, who comes to create a new people out of all the nations. And so we look at Romans chapter 15, where we read the following. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles, the nations, might receive glory for his mercy. As it is written, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. And he who arises to rule the Gentiles, the nations, in him will the Gentiles hope. Brothers and sisters, sometimes your life and sometimes the life of the church can seem like nothing but the ugly landscape of tree stumps where there's nothing much to celebrate. And it seems as if death and hell are winning. And so we hold on to Isaiah's prophecy and the hope that Jesus Christ arises to rule the world and that in the midst of tears and in the midst of frustration, we can sing with the ancient church for thousands of years, we can sing an Advent hymn of hoping and longing and aching and yearning and praying that the Lord would return. O come thou branch of Jesse's stem, regard thine own and rescue them. From depths of hell, thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. And then verse four, O come thou dayspring from on high. Dayspring, it's an old English word. It means sunrise. You can think of Isaiah 9, the people who in darkness walked have seen a glorious light. Or you can think of Isaiah chapter 60, which was the text that I preached on one year ago at the funeral of Dennis Wubbs. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. We see this this in Luke chapter one in the the prophecy, the song of Zechariah at the birth, or at the announcement of the birth of Jesus, where we read, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise, or in the King James Version, whereby the day spring shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the ways of peace. Zechariah, he understood that Isaiah was prophesying in Isaiah about something new where the Lord would arise and banish the the darkness from the land with his light. 
And the days are dark, often dark for the church. And we seem to hold our little candle, but it doesn't shine much light in the darkness. It seems so little. And I know, brothers and sisters, that in your own lives and in your own hearts, there can be gloomy clouds. And that life can be obscure and dark, and it can be scary. So pray with Isaiah. And pray with Zechariah to Jesus Christ, the day spring, the sunrise, the light of the world. Stand on the wall as a watchman who waits for the morning, long and yearn for Christ to return like a sunrise. And sing with the church, O come thou day spring from on high, and comfort us by drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. The last verse, verse five, speaks of Jesus as David's key, a messianic promise that comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 22, verse 22, where we read the following, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And in the New Testament, Jesus takes this promise of Isaiah and applies it to himself in the book of Revelation, where we read in Revelation 3, verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. Jesus holds the key of David and he has control over the kingdom and over the affairs of the world. And it's as if he wants us to imagine heaven and hell as two doors. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, two doors which are locked and which are opened only by Jesus Christ himself. And in his first coming, the Lord Jesus came and descended into hell to redeem his people for himself. And one day he will return with his key and he will lock the door of hell forever. And he will open the doors of paradise. And we will see everything made new. And so we pray our tears and we pray our hope with the ancient church. O come thou who hast David's key, save us that we eternally in paradise regained may dwell. Forever shut the gates of hell. O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, thou Lord of might. O come, thou branch of Jesse's stem. O come, thou dayspring from on high. O come, thou who hast David's key. Ransom us from captivity, Lord, and from exile. Rescue us from the depths of hell and the grave. Comfort us, O Lord. Disperse the dark shadows and these gloomy clouds of the night. Save us, Lord. Bring this dark world to an end. Slam the door on hell and open the doors of heaven. Lord Jesus, we have redemption in your blood, but we wait for the day of redemption. O come, O come, O come, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. This is the advent tension in which the church lives her life. And then we hear it. 
we hear the answer. We hear it faintly and then louder. It's not yet the rousing Christmas chorus of, oh come all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. It's more subdued, subdued. It's a refrain which rises slowly, a refrain of hope and of vindication and of power and promise also for you this morning. A refrain that reaches down musically into our weak hearts and pulls us up in faith to see the certainty of the end. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to you. O Israel. Brothers and sisters, Church of Christ, all you suffering souls, I declare to you this Advent Sunday that the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming, and he's coming to judge the living and the dead. And he's coming to make all things new and he's coming to perfect his church, and he's coming to take his nail-scarred hands and wipe every tear from your lives. He's coming to make things right again. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's make our prayer and our song one and the same. Let's please rise and sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, hymn 16.